0: Hopefully you found your way to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be at in a little bit. Uh, This past fall, I held meetings with our church leadership and our staff as we try to do each year to kind of get an idea of where we're at as a church and uh, what is the next step? What needs to take place next at Faith Church? And we also uh, had an outside firm uh, do some surveys and some study. Some of you participated in those surveys because we wanted to get a clear picture of where we are and, and what's next. And the overwhelming consensus that was most obvious and clear as a next step for our church was to engage in our community more. It was obvious that God is working mightily in many people's hearts and lives. We're seeing transformation take place. We're seeing people take steps in their discipleship and grow closer uh, to God. But we want to see that uh, move out of the walls of our church and into the streets of our community. And for that reason, one of the main uh, priorities of our church in 2024 is to be a church that has a culture of serving, serving our community. And for the month of February, this month, we're going to focus on loving our neighbor. And today we're going to look at what I think is the most famous passage about loving your neighbor in Luke 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. And this story is where we get the term that's very common in our language today and in our culture, a Good Samaritan. The news will use the term a good Samaritan to refer to someone who goes out of their way to help someone in need. This is language that's used commonly in pop culture and in media, but most people don't know the whole story of the good Samaritan. And even though this story has worked its way into our culture's consciousness and we use the term Samaritan, most people don't know what a Samaritan really is. They just know he was a nice guy who helped someone out. And so we're going to study this story today to help us get a grasp on what is the real story here? What's the story behind the story? What's the meaning? And let me start with the word story, because this is a story that Jesus tells. You know, there are many accounts in Scripture that are accounts of things that actually happened, but there are stories that Jesus told as illustrations of a lesson he was giving. So this is a narrative that he tells to people to help them understand a concept. And when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus does this all the time and uses stories that people can relate to, that they can see in their mind to grasp important truths. And nobody did this better than Jesus He knew people deeply. He knew what they needed to know, and he knew how to communicate to them. He is a master teacher. And probably everyone here knows that and could agree with the idea that Jesus is a master teacher because every religion has a master teacher, right? Muslims have Muhammad, who is the great prophet, the master teacher. Hindus have Buddha, who is the great teacher, And Jesus is the great teacher of Christianity, but there's something that sets him apart. And that Jesus is not only the great teacher of Christianity, Jesus is also the subject matter being taught. He's not just the teacher, he's the God, he's the Savior. And I think if you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus is not only a great teacher from the stories that he tells and the sermons that he delivers, you'll see from his interactions with people and his kindness and his love and his power, he's more than just a master teacher. He's the Son of God. And so let's read this story from the master teacher and Savior. We'll start reading in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we go any further, I don't want you to picture a lawyer like you see on billboards around town. All right, This is not the hammer who's asking Jesus a question. All right, This isn't like a lawyer that you see on TV promising you millions if you've recently been in a car accident. This is an expert in the religious law. He's probably more like a seminary professor than he is an injury lawyer. He's an expert on the Bible, which for them at that time is mainly commands and rules or law. So he studies the law of God. He is an expert on the law. Now, he is kind of like a lawyer, and that he asks this question to try to get Jesus to walk into a trap. You see, a detective is to ask questions to find the truth or to figure out the, the, the riddle, but a lawyer asks you questions to prove a point. And this lawyer is asking Jesus a question not because he wants to learn the truth, but because he's trying to prove a point. He's testing Jesus. What he hopes here is that he can get Jesus to say something that he can use against him. And so Jesus answers him wisely by answering his question with a question. He says, in verse 26, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Jesus says, Well, you're a lawyer. You're an expert. Why don't you tell me what you find is the answer to inheriting eternal life? So the man answers and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now what he's just said here is the Shema, which is this, thing that this saying, this motto, this creed that Jews would say again and again and again, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, with all of your might. And he adds, and your neighbor as yourself. This is a good answer. Jesus says to him in verse 28, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Elsewhere, Jesus has said that if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself, that on these two principles, all the rest of the law hangs. If you can get those two basic ideas right, everything else falls in line. But it's easy to say, love the Lord your God with all of your soul. It's harder to do. It's easy to say to love your neighbor as yourself, but it's harder to follow through on. Let me give you an example. You might say that you love your neighbor, but if your neighbor gets a brand new car tomorrow, I have a feeling you're not going to be as excited for them as you would be excited if you had gotten a brand new car. Right? You would look at the car in their driveway and go, why did they get that? Or you'd say, boy, that was a horrible financial decision. (laughs) Right? It's hard for us to take joy in good things that happen to other people because we want those things to happen to us because we love ourselves a little bit more than we love others. It's just natural. And so that's at work here in verse 29. When the lawyer responds to Jesus, It says, but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, this man is less like a lawyer, and less like a seminary professor, and more like a person. Because he's just like all of us. He wants to justify himself. And that's what all of us want to do. We were born trying to justify ourselves. We were born pointing our fingers at our siblings and say, but she did, but he, right? We're constantly pointing at the problems and inconsistencies of other people, of authority figures, of rules, because if there's a problem with everyone else, it makes me look better and I'm justified. If I had a a way to quantify just how much energy we expend on attempts to justify ourselves, I would be able to fix the energy crisis. We're always looking to justify ourselves. And this man, like all of us, looking to justify himself, says, Well, who really is my neighbor? I mean, how broad is that? Is that everyone? I'd like to narrow down the application of that command because if it's just my family that's going to be a lot easier if it's just the people that I like in my close circle of friends that that might be that may be hard but it's easier than everyone and so Jesus tells a story in response to this question and Jesus once again doesn't answer the question he doesn't answer the question of who is my neighbor Instead, he tells us a story that shows us what love is and what love does. Let's look at it together. Verse 30, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise a levite. So priest, probably easier for you to picture who that is. A levite is another religious leader, someone who is affiliated with the church, someone that if you saw them you'd be like, "Oh good. Here's someone who helped me, who will help me." A levite when he arrived at the place came and looked. And passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, two coins, and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So Jesus asked the man another question. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said to him, Go, go and do likewise. There's something about the main character in this story that you might miss if you don't know the background on Samaritans. Samaritans and how they're treated throughout the New Testament are shown to be some of the most hated people. Among Jews, the pervading idea is that Samaritans were less than. You see this in the Gospels, Jesus stops at a well and there's a Samaritan woman there and Jesus speaks to her and the woman is shocked that Jesus even talks to her, much less asks her for some of her water. It's scandalous that Jesus would talk to a Samaritan woman. Elsewhere in scripture, the people are so angry with Jesus that they insult him and they insult him by calling him, of all things, a Samaritan. So when the Samaritan shows up in this story that Jesus is telling, the crowd that's listening would have heard a Samaritan pass by and they thought, this guy's going to finish him off. He's going to be one to kill him. They would have assumed he'll be the bad guy in the story. It's a major plot twist for the Samaritan to be the hero of this story. That would have been shocking to the crowd listening. And the fact that we now call this story the story of the Good Samaritan, that term, Good Samaritan, would have been a paradox or a misnomer for most Jews. Listen, it was so bad that it was a customary practice for many Jews, probably not all Jews, but for the most racist of the Jews. They would wake up in the morning and they would pray, Father, thank you for another day. Thank you for my daily provision. Please restore Israel And may no Samaritans see the resurrection. Amen. That's how they would begin their day. They hated Samaritans. So here is this man who's hated. He's a character that Jesus has chosen on purpose as someone that the crowd would have thought, here's the bad guy of the story, and he shows love to the man in need. What Jesus is showing the lawyer is that a neighbor is not defined by location or ethnicity or race or socioeconomic status or political affiliation or religion. A neighbor is defined by love, by someone that we show love to. And that means that your neighbor is someone who is nothing like you. Your neighbor is someone who frustrates you. That means your neighbor is someone who doesn't just live on your street, but someone who lives out on the street, who works on the corner of the street, who belongs to a street gang. And this isn't easy to accept, and it's even harder to apply. Because we could easily justify what the priest and the Levite did. It was a dangerous place. Obviously, someone's just been beaten and stripped of their clothing. If I ever get robbed, I hope they're just satisfied with my wallet and not my clothes as well. They took his clothing. They left him half dead. Clearly, this is a place where there are dangerous people. And for the priest and the Levite to go where this man was and to stick around would put them in this dangerous place longer. And the longer they were there, the more risk there would be. You see, it's, it's messy to love your neighbor. It's dangerous. It's costly. It takes time and money. It's frustrating. And because it's so hard to love our neighbor the neighbor that looks nothing like us and is frustrating and is difficult, that's beat up, that smells bad. We find all kinds of reasons not to help our neighbors. Years ago, somebody wrote about if this man who fell on the wayside after being attacked, if, if this man in the pit happened today, how everyone would react to him. In our culture, he said a self-pitying person would come along and say, man, you have not seen anything until you've seen the pit that I fell into, how bad my life was. An optimist would stop by and say, hey, things could be worse. A pessimist would stop by and say, things will get worse. News reporters would stop by and get an exclusive story on the man in the pit. An inspector would stop by and ask if the man had permission and permits to be in the pit. An educator would stop by and give a lecture on the elementary principles of the pit. An evasive person would come along and just avoid the subject altogether. A charismatic would come by and say, just confess, you're not in a pit. (laughs) Fundamentalists would come along and say, you deserve to be in that pit. A legalist would say only bad people fall into pits. A TV evangelist would come by and raise money for people affected by pits and (laughs) forget to give any of it down. We can all find a way to wiggle out of reaching down to the man in the pit. It's easy. Unless we look in the pit and we see someone like us, if we're easily able to put ourselves in that person's shoes to see ourselves in that same situation and desperately hope that someone would help us suddenly it becomes much harder to look past the person in the pit a friend of mine in high school he and his mother were driving home one day and they ran out of gas on the highway and I went to high school so long ago that cell phones had been invented, but they almost never worked. And they had a cell phone, but it didn't have any service. And they're stuck on the highway and a man stops. And he says, are you out of gas? And she goes, yeah. And he says, this happened to me years ago and I was stranded for hours. And so now I always keep a gallon of gas in the bed of my truck for exactly this situation and they put a gallon of gas in their car, and they were able to get to the next exit. He had been there. He'd been in that situation. He knew what it was like to stand on the side of the highway just needing a gallon of gas. And so he stopped, and he helped. You see, when we've been there, it's easier for us to extend grace and help to the person in that situation And friend, here's the point of this story. The more we understand the gospel, the more we recognize that we're the man on the side of the road, broken and beaten, naked, helpless. The more we understand the gospel, the more we come to understand that we are the person in dire need, disgusting, smelling bad. When we see people around us in need, we look at them, and we don't see someone different from us. We see ourselves. It's like looking in a mirror, because we know spiritually we were there. In the 1500s, John Bradford a Puritan, this was in a time when they would regularly be hanging someone in town for some crime, when they would be carrying this person walking them through town from the jail to the gallows where they would be hung. They would come by Bradford's office, and he would always say to himself, when they carried that poor soul by who was going to be executed, he would say, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. If it wasn't for God's grace, that's what I deserve. You see, the more we come to understand the gospel, the more we recognize what the psalmist sings in Psalm 40, verse 2. He brought me out of that horrible pit and out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. The only reason I'm not in a pit is because God plucked me out of it. When we see ourselves as the man in the pit, we can identify with his need. And when we see our Savior as the loving Samaritan, we can follow his lead. When we see ourselves as the man in the pit, we can identify with his need. But when we see our Savior as the loving Samaritan, we can follow his lead. Jesus, as the master's storyteller, is not just telling us a nice story with a lovable hero. Jesus is telling us a story about himself. He comes to the end of the story and he says to the lawyer, who was a neighbor to this man? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan is the one who shows mercy. And what is it that the loving Samaritan does? Verse 33 tells us, look at it. When he saw him, he had compassion. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a verse we just recently read about Jesus? That when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When the Samaritan saw this man, he had compassion on him. When Jesus saw us, he had compassion on us. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He saw us and in love He came to us. What's verse 34? He had compassion on him. Verse 33, verse 34. So he went to him. The priest and the Levite went to the other side of the road. They moved away from the man in need. They moved away from the dangerous pit. Jesus walked to it. The Samaritan walked to it. Jesus walked to this place. Broken, messed up world. He crossed the cosmos to come here and be with us, because he saw us in our need, and he had compassion on us. We're the man on the side of the road, and Jesus is the Samaritan. Jesus would say of himself in Luke nineteen ten, "I have come to seek and to save the lost." The Samaritan just happened by. Jesus came looking for you. Samaritan was just on his way and an opportunity came up. Jesus was on the road looking for you. Verse 34, so went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Friends, that's what Jesus does for us. He comes to us and He binds our brokenness. Isaiah 53.3 says we are healed. By His stripes we are healed. That's what Jesus does for us. He binds what's broken in us. He frees us from what binds us. Places Him on His donkey. Takes Him to an inn. He gives us a new home. And even even better yet, the the Samaritan's going to leave, and he says to the innkeeper, here's two coins, which commentators tell us is like two months' rent. Here's two coins. Give him whatever he needs. What is it that Jesus does when he has to leave? He says, I'm leaving the Spirit that will provide all of your needs, that will be here with you, and will continue to care for you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you on your own. I'll continue to care for you, even while I go back to heaven. This is what Jesus has done for us. How can we love our neighbor like the Good Samaritan? We love our neighbor like the Good Samaritan by recognizing that Jesus loved us that way. You see, you really start to love people once you realize your love is broken and that you needed God to fix you. You can't produce the love that this requires in and of yourself. It's not in you. You're not capable of it. In the story of the Good Samaritan, the man is the Good Samaritan is a man of means. He he has the money to say, here's two months' rent to care for this person. He's got his own animal. He has the, the necessary means on him to fix what's broken with this man, to bind up his wounds, to, to pour on oil. He has everything needed to care for him because this is an incredible, remarkable story. All around me are people in need, and I don't have what they need. But Jesus does. And if I can recognize that what people all around me need is not me, it's Jesus. I can just give them what he's given me. When we recognize that our need is so desperate, and we experience God's goodness in our lives, suddenly we go from not having enough in our own hearts to God pouring His love into us and we're overflowing with love. It's bubbling out of us, spilling over. And it's its nothing to share it with other people because in comparison to the love that God has poured into our own lives, it's I think the best way to show you what I mean is to to tell you about a loving, good Samaritan I know. There's a man that I I knew for many years. His name is Bill. Bill would tell people when he was a boy, his parents took him to see the movies. Bill was African-American, and so... They weren't allowed to sit where the white people sat. They had to sit in the segregated section of the theater. But they saw a movie about a motorcycle gang. And Bill said, ever since I saw that movie when I was a kid, I wanted to be a guy who rode a motorcycle and was in a motorcycle gang. Bill did everything he could to become a Hell's Angel. He got the same tattoos that Hell's Angels have. He had the president of the eastern chapter of Hell's Angels in his living room, holding his baby son on his knee, asked to become a member, and they denied him because the Hell's Angels had no black members. Bill wanted to be the first African American in the Hell's Angels. They wouldn't accept him. So he went to the Renegades. We got a picture of the Renegades crest and symbol in Virginia Beach. Bill became a leader in the Renegade Motorcycle Gang. He lived a life of hardness and drugs and alcohol and narrow miss after narrow miss with the police. But around 1982, Bill, the leader of the Renegades, who was called by a name that I cannot repeat in this service, because it was so inappropriate. was sitting in his, his kitchen at his dining room table, and his wife and his boys had gone to bed, and there was a TV preacher on that he had heard about. And it was actually pretty crazy because this church Every once in a while around holidays, like Easter and Christmas, they would pay to have their church service put on the local TV station. And they had done that. And it had been shown that morning, but because of a a glitch at the, the TV program. Something with their programming and their tapes got mixed up. And they actually showed the service twice on accident. Once in the morning and then once at midnight that night, which wasn't supposed to happen. But while Bill was sitting there at his dining room table, this preacher comes on TV who's not supposed to be on TV. And he'd heard about this guy, and he had been invited to the church, and he refused to go. But with nobody else around, he listened for just a few moments. And he said, suddenly I was crying. Two days later on a Sunday morning, he came to the church and could not wait for the service to be over so that at the end he could come to the front to the altar and accept the love of God into his life. Let's show the, the next picture. This is a picture of Bill with his, one of his sons at a recent family gathering. Bill passed away this past week from complications after a stroke. People have been sharing photos, and I was just moved, you know, looking at photos of him with his son. And uh, the next one is he and his wife at a a Christmas party. And you look at that and you go, that guy's not the leader of the renegades. (laughs) The love of Jesus made all the difference in his life. When I was looking through these photos that people were sharing this past week, there was one that I came across. Let's show that next picture. And it's Bill, and he's helping at his church because they were doing Operation Christmas Child, where they, everyone puts together these boxes for children in need and in third world countries, and their church is a place where people could come and, and drop all of those off. And he's helping load those on a huge truck. And there, on the side of the box, is the name of the organization that does that, Samaritan's Purse. In 1982, Bill's life changed, and the love of God poured in. And he spent the rest of his life doing things like this. And I never saw Bill in my entire life, I never saw Bill stand up in front of a crowd of people. But I saw him doing stuff like this all the time. And I worked alongside of him in a ministry that we had at our church that I belonged to in Virginia Beach. Let's show that next photo. Our church had a ministry where we would take buses and we would go to some of the worst parts of town and we would pick up children and bring them to church, bring their families to church. And Bill and his wife, Barbara, did this for years. And I was a part of this ministry. And every summer, Bill would do something where for each bus, and our church, the larger church, had 10 to 12 bus routes at a time. Each summer, a Sunday, each Sunday in the summer, he would have a cookout for each bus full of kids. And what I remember about Bill is Bill cooking up hamburgers and hot dogs for these kids and then sitting down and eating with them, talking with kids who were on the same path that he was on and talking to them about how God changed his life, how Jesus came into his life And changed everything. How does someone go from renegade to Good Samaritan? The love of Jesus. Being the man on the side of the road desperate, and Jesus coming to him through a TV program at midnight and pulling him out of the pit and the clay. How do we love our neighbors? How can we be good Samaritans? Recognize Jesus is the good Samaritan and we are the man in the pit. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.